And now I'd like to hear from uh, David Childs, an architect who joined the uh, Washington, D.C. office of Skidmore Owings in uh, Merrill in 1971 uh, and served as design director of the Pennsylvania Avenue uh, Commission under the leadership of uh, Nathaniel Owings and Senator Moynihan. Uh, In 1984, David relocated to New York. We became the firm's first uh, chairman, as well as a senior design partner. Uh, Right now, his design for the new Freedom Tower at the World Trade Center is now under construction. Uh, David knows um, a ton about the mall, about architectural history and redevelopment in Washington, having served as chairman of the National Capital Planning Commission and chairman of the Commission of fine arts here in this city, both of which are presidential appointments. David Childs. Good evening. I wish I had uh, not the three to five minutes I was told yesterday that I should limit myself to, but three to five hours because of the wonderful life that I had handed to me by connection with Pat over some 35 years, the beginning of my career, fresh out of school, uh, being chosen to work on the Pennsylvania Avenue plan, just at a moment that Pat came back to Washington. Um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about that and about the last project that we did together, uh, sort of the two bookends, um, but perhaps during the questions and answers I can tell you a few more anecdotes um, in between. It was so fortunate for me because as an extraordinary statesman that he was, he was also an extraordinary architect. And I don't use that term lightly because not since Jefferson had we had a man of his stature so devoted to architecture, so committed to it, so understanding of it, and so influential upon it as Pat Moynihan. And you would think most people, when he, something like that is said, think, what a, too bad, such a long gap uh, between those times. But in fact, when you speak of people of that level, it's extraordinarily lucky how we had them at such a close interval together. Um, I hope that we'll find another soon. I'm also doubtful. Um, the... Um, Let me begin first with Pennsylvania Avenue. I came down here in 1968, just before Pat returned, but his story began much earlier. And in fact, uh, uh, he was the one who was at the creation because he made it of the idea about Pennsylvania Avenue. And I hesitate to tell this story because he loved to tell it. And he told it so well um, that um, I feel that I'm sort of treading on very thin ice here But I believe all of it is absolutely true, and um, it's all about him and the power and the thoughtfulness that he had about uh, architecture and urbanism and what it could mean. Uh, When Justice Goldberg was appointed the Secretary of Labor for the new young Jack Kennedy, they rode together back from the Capitol in the car, coming back to the White House at the end of the inauguration. And uh, uh, the president said, in an offhanded remark, he looked to the north and he said, what a terrible condition this street is in. One side, of course, being the Federal Triangle, all filled out. 
uh, with federal buildings, and to the north, these empty lots uh, serving as parking lots for the very few businesses that were uh, in the area. And Goldberg did what a smart man would do when he came back uh, to his office. He assigned what he thought was the smartest young man to work on the problem. And that, of course, was, was Pat Moynihan. And Pat thought long and hard about it and came up with a very short document. The only thing of which I don't think he had anything to do with was its title, which was the report to the president uh, by the ad hoc committee on federal office space. <laughs> Pretty boring title. But in it was a call to responsibility by the greatest client of architecture in the country, uh, particularly the responsibility about government buildings, civic buildings, and the understanding of the role that architecture should play and the role that the government should and should not play in defining what to him should not be a national style. It was a brilliant white paper that became known and linked to his name for the longest time and affected all of this country and particularly the work of the General Services Administration uh, now so beautifully carried on by Bob Peck, whom you will hear about later carrying on these ideas that were so beautifully laid down uh, in that paper. So he came back, and out of that grew the idea for doing something about Pennsylvania Avenue to the north. And, and Pat um, and Nat Owings, who was the chairman, Pat was uh, the vice chairman, became fast friends and uh, co-conspirators of getting this great task uh, done, uh, came up with a plan, and it was just as Pat was in the White House working on the arrangements for showing the work to the president on his return from Dallas that he received the news. And of course, the plan immediately went quiet, and it wasn't until Lady Bird Johnson and her interest in City Beautiful, the, the uh, uh, the, all the great work that she did on beautification, uh, and uh, the advisors to the president got it back on track and came, began work again. It was at that time that I came to Washington to work, and I realized quite quickly what an extraordinary man that I was dealing with. Not only was he a great critic uh, and a great eye for architecture, but he also knew how to get things done. Uh, luckily, within six months... To the surprise of some, uh, uh, the, uh, Nixon was elected president, and to the surprise of all, uh, Nixon appointed Pat Moynihan as his urban affairs advisor with cabinet rank. Pat knew enough that, uh, forget the wonderful suite of offices that he was offered in the old State War and Navy building, he wanted to be right next to the Oval Office, and he accepted a cubbyhole there that I got to know quite well. Um, and uh, focused, of course, on many things. I only focused with him on a tiny piece, but the one that he really, truly loved, which was Pennsylvania Avenue. And what he knew was that we had to meet with the president, that the president had to make a statement about the avenue as his intention to do something. And the way to do that was not only to present, uh, prepare the presentation, which was my responsibility, but his responsibility, as he said it, was to go every evening just before he went home, and they were many late nights, 
go into George Schultz's office, who was the chief of staff at that time of the many stations that he held, take from the bottom of the pile the Pennsylvania Avenue plan and put it at the top. He did his job very well. We met with the president. Uh, the president was enthusiastic. We used a model uh, of not just Pennsylvania Avenue because it was important to think about Pennsylvania Avenue as fit into the federal city. And suddenly, for some strange reason, the president began to focus on what is now known as Constitution Gardens. Well, it turned out that John Ehrlichman uh, had heard Nixon mention as he flew over it one day in the helicopter. Nixon pointed out and he said, what are those buildings doing down there on that side? I was, when I was vice president, I was told by the president to get rid of those. Why are they still there? <laughs> Ehrlich remembered that and went back and told the Secretary of the Navy that he would be transferred to Ohio <laughs> if the buildings were not removed. These were temporary World War I buildings where the OSS began, um, and they were taken down. So the president, well aware of that, because John told him uh, about this many times of success, uh, wanted to talk about that project. And from that sprang a whole new project, which was uh, the one that Ashton referred to, uh, the plan for the bicentennial for the mall. But to get back to Pennsylvania Avenue, um, the plan was done. Uh, Pat was there to see it through, to take it to the, uh, to the hill, and to um, finally institutionalize it so that it, would, uh, that it would happen. And so it was not only his vision, but his ability to know how to make things happen, and his, his, um, uh, his um, doggedness, uh, that that avenue looks so different today. You will fast forward with me to um, the late 1990s in New York, uh, where he was now as a senator and I was as an architect. Um, he called me and talked to me about an idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, how logical would this be to take Amtrak, the great uh, train, uh, federal train system that would come to the front door of New York and put it in the Farley building, which was a McKim Mead and White building. And it made so much sense um, uh, that, uh, of course, everybody was for it, but we none of us realized how many hurdles uh, it would have to go through until it finally became uh, at least looking to be some sort of reality. The project uh, went along, and Pat accomplished something that he was perhaps as fond of and proud of as anything, which was to get the Federal Highway Trust Fund in his transportation building, uh, uh, transportation uh, legislation, to agree that a tiny piece of these collection of taxes and tolls and um, uh, gas taxes to be allocated for mass transit. And, of course, a section of that went for Pennsylvania Station, as it was then um, called, the idea. And a competition was held and interviews, and I was all very hands-off, but I was very fortunate that I was chosen to be the architect for that. And I went to work um, at the bookend of my career with, with Pat on really an extraordinarily and equally uh, important uh, project, and certainly for that, 
uh, for that city. I came up, I worked hard, and I came up with an idea uh, that I thought was bold and, and had, a, had a great vision of, uh, of arrival uh, in the city. And I brought the model down to the Capitol to show Pat and Liz, uh, who was there, uh, for the first time. And there were, all of a sudden, uh, the people filled the room and were standing there, and the model was covered. And Pat stood there and waited and looked at me and said, I made a couple of comments, and I said, well, let's, let's take a look at it. And I pulled off the top, and there was dead silence as everybody waited for the king to say what he thought of it. And he said, and I oh, still think to today that uh, Liz probably had some secret thumbs up, thumbs down signal to him. Um, but he said, I love it. And here was this idea that was two blocks long, more than two blocks, north to south, this great curved and bent uh, 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 truss that would welcome people into the station, that would uh, sense of arrival as you came into this room, which would be as large as Grand Central, uh, and, and yet, in a way, be even better, because although not as high as Grand Central, you would look up and see the real stars through its transparent roof, much as you do here uh, in the Smithsonian. And we went to work on getting it done. And he did his job. The, the, the work was done. We, all the drawings were complete. He got the funding completely set, the, not only the, the, uh, the, uh, the appropriation, but the authorization. Everything was done until the last two weeks. There was one signature that was needed on a piece of paper, and that building would have been built. Um, but President Clinton decided to have some other things that he needed to finish up, and that piece of paper never got signed. And Pat was distraught because we were so close, and uh, I, I wish that he were alive today to see these tiny, although baby steps, being taken to have it now move forward again. Um, Chuck Schumer deserves a great deal of credit in this, and I know that Mora, uh, is, uh, who has been through a terrible battle to try to have it happen, is less of an optimist than I am. But I do know that when things start to get getting paid for and tracks start being moved, you get pregnant. And this, this project will be pregnant. No longer will we have this great trust, but we will have the great room. We will have the sense of arrival, the front door for the city, and now, instead of Pennsylvania Station, it will be the Daniel P. Moynihan Station. Thank you. Very well said. Now it's a pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Dick Moe, who currently serves as the president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, as president, uh, Dick leads an organization whose mission is to save uh, the nation's diverse historic places and create more livable communities for all Americans, uh, something that Senator Moynihan uh, was quite dedicated to. Uh, Dick has held a number of positions uh, in organizations uh, in uh, city, state, and federal levels over the years and is a real champion uh, in this country uh, of historic preservation. Please welcome Dick Moe. 
Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and indeed an honor for me to participate in this program honoring a man that, uh, that I revered, uh, so looked up to. Uh, he, is, he was a giant in so many ways in my field, but also in so many other fields. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Peter and Isabel Malkin. They, they, in many ways, are following the legacy of Pat Moynihan by their impact on the built environment, and particularly the historic part of that environment, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I worked in the Senate before I went to the White House, and, and Pat Moynihan was a giant in the Senate, and I so looked up to him, and I went to the gallery to listen to him every time I had a chance, because he was mesmerizing, whatever the subject was. But when I got to the White House, when, and I'd never met him, uh, uh, long to, but I'd never met him. One day uh, in the White House, I got this call of Senator Moynihan's on the phone. Dick, this is Pat. <laughs> yes, sir, Senator. <laughs> so nice to hear from you. Uh, Dick, I hear uh, Vice President Mondial is going to Buffalo. I said, that, that's correct, Senator. Well, I think it would be splendid if he went to see the Guarantee Building designed by Louis Sullivan while he was here. Well, this is before my days in president. I barely knew who Louis Sullivan was. But I said, I think that is a wonderful idea, Senator. <laughs> and, and, and we will make that happen. And, of course, uh, when Mondale got back from the trip, he said, why did I have to go see that old building anyway? <laughs> I said, that's part of your architectural education, sir. Uh, anyway, uh, after I came to the trust, I had the great privilege of getting to know Pat, and uh, we became friends, and uh, again, we had a chance to work together in, in so many ways. Uh, <clears throat> in 1999, the 50th anniversary of the National Trust, we awarded him the highest honor uh, in preservation, the Louise DuPont Crown and Shield Award for a lifetime achievement uh, uh, in, our, in our field. Uh, we, we just had such gratitude and admiration for what he did. Uh, I think he probably had a more profound effect on the built environment, uh, on the worlds of art and architecture and historic preservation than anybody in our lifetime, certainly, and I think maybe going all the way back to Jefferson. Uh, I can't think of anybody that, uh, that had a more profound effect. And uh, he was the most articulate, engaging, and effective preservation advocate of his time. There's no question about it. He understood the importance of landmark buildings as community anchors and as symbols of pride. Uh, he understood the importance of architecture in an urban setting. He consistently recognized the value of preservation as a force for economic revitalization of older uh, urban areas. And he pursued a vision of saving and, reu and reusing historic buildings as a vital and meaningful part of daily, daily life. In other words, he got it. His commitment to preservation has had an impact on communities virtually everywhere in this country and beyond. The products of his vision are clearly and inspiringly uh, visible here in Washington, in New York City, across New York State, and indeed all over this country. In Washington, <clears throat> many of our most prominent and best-loved architectural treasures are ours to see and enjoy today because of what he did. The old post office on Pennsylvania Avenue was threatened. He saved it from demolition, and he, la he later encouraged its restoration. He wrote legislation that ensured a new public role for the pension building as the home of the National Building Museum, uh, which is thriving there today. He spoke out against the proposal to extend the west front of the U.S. Capitol 
And thanks to his efforts, we no longer have a parking lot facing the east front of the Capitol. He rescued Union Station from years of deterioration and the threat of demolition. And having saved Union Station, he pushed for construction of the Thurgood Marshall Building next door, which gave the federal judiciary much needed office space and completed the monumental complex envisioned by Daniel Burnham and the Macmillan Commission a century earlier. And as David uh, so, so eloquently pointed out, uh, he was so instrumental in the work of the Pennsylvania Avenue Development Corporation, and we know that story, and I'm sure Bob Peck will have more to say about that. Uh, finally, his work with two federal agencies in the, in the field of policy had an impact that continues to be felt across the United States. His first target was the General Services Administration, and again, I think Bob will shed some light on this. Uh, as David indicated, in 1962, uh, when Pat was then the Assistant Secretary of Labor, he was asked to write a memo on, on federal office space. But he did more than he was asked. That was not for the first time and not for the last. And he created a manifesto called The Guiding Principles of Federal Architecture. And it had several major points, and I'd like to read just a few of them. First, the belief that good design is optional does not bear scrutiny. The design of federal office buildings must provide visual testimony to the dignity, enterprise, vigor, and stability of the American government. Three, the development of an official style must be avoided. Design must flow from the architectural profession to the government and not vice versa. Four, federal architecture should meet the test of Pericles' evocation to the Athenians. We do not imitate, for we are a model to others. That's a, that's a pretty good manifesto. <laughs> uh, now, this document, uh, as compelling as it was, did not immediately revolutionize the design process for federal buildings. <coughs> we all know that it should have, but it, it didn't. But what it did do, it sparked, it catalyzed a discussion and a thought process uh, and a long-ranging conversation on this overlooked subject. And it eventually inspired GSA's commitment to excellence in new design and preservation, which Bob Peck has had a lot to do with. He continued to rail against bad design. Uh, in 1981, when the Hart Senate office building was nearing completion, Senator Moynihan introduced a resolution. It read, and I quote, Whereas the plastic cover has now been removed, revealing, as feared, a building whose banality is exceeded only by its expense. <laughs> now, therefore, be it resolved that it is the sense of the Senate that the plastic cover be put back. <laughs> now, that, that is one creative legislator, I want to tell you. The other, the other area where he had a profound impact was in, in the area of transportation. And in the early 1990s, uh, with the interstate uh, highway system largely completed, uh, Senator Moynihan decided it was really time to rethink transportation policy. And he did. He brought the same kind of creative process to transportation policy that he brought to architecture. The result was something we called ICE-T. It was the first really seriously revamped transportation authorization bill. Uh, it pri primarily it challenged the longstanding bias Towards new, towards new highways. Uh, he used to say, we've poured enough concrete. Uh, it required planning that incorporated all forms of transportation. 
created a level playing field for federal subsidies, including public transit for the first time, uh, in addition to roads. And importantly, it set aside funds for transportation enhancements, which remains in law to this day. These are projects. Pat realized that trans most transportation projects adversely impacted the communities through which they were built. And these enhancements funds were meant to mitigate that, that impact by providing funding for historic preservation and for conservation of open spaces and for other purposes. It was a revolutionary change in the way, and of course the highway departments hate it, but it's still a matter of law and we've got to keep it there. So it really all comes down to this. Uh, Senator Moynihan was one of the best friends uh, of preservation ever in this country, and we miss him dearly. We don't have those kinds of advocates and those kinds of friends uh, of that powerful nature uh, uh, today. We never had a more articulate spokesman or an influential attitude, advocate or a passionate ally. Uh, he truly was a giant of his time. And we, includes millions of Americans who never knew him, and who never even recognized his name, but were beneficiaries all of his marvelous legacy. Thank you. Very well said, uh, Dick. Uh, that, that visit to Buffalo must have done uh, Vice President Mondale well. Joan Mondale has sat on the uh, commission for the National Portrait Gallery for, for many, many years uh, following and continues that uh, service uh, here in this very, uh, very building. Uh, Bob Peck serves as the Commissioner of Public Buildings for the U.S. Uh, General Services Administration, GSA. Uh, he's had uh, loads of uh, federal experience at the Office of Management and Budget, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, Federal Communications uh, Commission, uh, served as Commissioner of Public Buildings during the Clinton administration, uh, and on the Senate side uh, was uh, served as uh, Chief of Staff uh, to uh, Senator Moynihan. Uh, please welcome Bob Peck. Uh, so I'm going to tell you the other part of the story about the Guarantee Building in Buffalo. Senator Moynihan, uh, Senator Moynihan went to Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo had a, uh, a very colorful mayor uh, in Senator Moynihan's first term, and uh, they were touring the city, which is uh, then, as still, uh, had its, has had its problems since the, uh, since the industry and the wheat industry basically uh, fled. Senator Moynihan was walking down the street. They turned the corner. They came upon the Guarantee Building. Senator Moynihan turned to Mayor Griffin <clears throat> and said, oh, Jimmy, this building is in every architectural textbook in the world. If you will just renovate this building, people will come the world over to see it. Uh, Mayor Griffin uh, responded with a phrase which refers to bovine excretions. <laughs> <clears throat> with the uh, television cameras running. And um, Senator Moynihan, in front of the cameras, said, I will get this building renovated, and when it's renovated, my Buffalo office will be moved into it. And when I was his chief of staff, we did exactly that. And I think it's worth noting um, today that Buffalo is one of those cities that um, prides itself on its cultural tourism based on the immense quality of its architecture, really. Second, I have to tell you a story about another station. When I went to uh, what turned out to be an interview for uh, a job with Senator Moynihan, in fact, 
I was working for Mrs. Mondale at the White House and thought I was being asked to uh, give Senator Moynihan some advice about public buildings, uh, he turned it into a job interview. Um, and he uh, impressed me because I knew he had been interested in architecture. I knew about the Pennsylvania Avenue plan. Uh, but he told me that we were going to, that one of the things that we were going to do when I joined his staff, the first time that had really come up, um, <laughs> was that we were going to, A, save the custom house in Lower Manhattan designed by Cass Gilbert. He knew the architect. And um, Tim's wife, Tracy, now works there for the Museum of the American Indian. And then he said, and we're going to save Union Station and turn it back into a train station. Now, um, Senator Moynihan was also already notorious with the Park Service, which was running it as a visitor center because he had held a hearing in which if, uh, uh, he had asked if the number of people who went down into the pit that the Park Service had dug in the floor to create a massive, uh, ridiculous slideshow of Washington landmarks, um, if the number of people who went down into the pit was equal to the number of people who emerged, and if anyone really <laughs> knew whether that was the case. Um, in any event, as a young, as a young staffer, Senator, so Senator Moynihan said, we're going to fix this up. By this time, the federal government had poured something like $75 million into the building, having uh, been um, uh, hornswoggled into this by a number of members of Congress who'd said they were going to turn it into a visitor center, wouldn't cost the government a penny. Senator Moynihan... Uh, one day after the Park Service had closed it, announced he was going to the floor to, uh, to put in a bill, and I had to write it really fast. And um, I said, don't do it. This thing is nobody will touch it. You really don't want to do it. It's not the right time. We'll do it some other time. Senator Moynihan did it. Um, to the credit, the Washington Post, the same day, I have a, always had a feeling that Harry McPherson made this happen, uh, the, the, the Washington Post editorialized the very same day. It was a great idea, and the bill passed. But let me tell you, I'm going to, everybody knows I really, I love architecture, I love preservation, and I will talk very briefly about that, and I'm going to try to talk briefly in, in any event. Um, but I want to note something. Senator Moynihan had this profound interest, not just in architecture, but in public works in general, and um, Dick has alluded to his work on transportation. Um, Senator Moynihan was not naive. This was, didn't, didn't always come from on high. He was also a very practical, very effective politician who could count votes. When Senator Moynihan um, joined the Senate Public Work, Environment and Public Works Committee, uh, a committee which had been known as Public Works since 1837 had changed its name. They added environment, and that being the, uh, the, um, the uh, issue of the moment, it is again, thank goodness, um, very soon the receptionist started referring to it on the phone as, you know, good morning, Environment Committee, Public Works had gone. Um, so Senator Moynihan, a few years later, when the Senate reorganized in 1986, when the Democrats had retaken the majority, Senator Moynihan said to his colleagues, he'd gained enough seniority, he had the right to chair a subcommittee, and he said, I'll tell you what, fellas, you guys can take nuclear regulation, you can take water pollution, you take air. Um, all I want is um, the highway program, the Corps of Engineers and Public Buildings, whereupon he controlled 80% of the funds that flowed through... <laughs> the Public Works Committee, and I was getting phone calls about how unfair this had all been. Um, no, nobody wanted it. Um, and uh, I, I should say also, the only thing, uh, the, I'll, I'll say two other things about the, the highway bill, which really did revolutionize um, the whole way in which we fund transportation. Senator Moynihan was the only person who chaired uh, a public works subcommittee who ever said to the highway lobby, we have poured enough concrete it's time to be smarter than that. And, um, 
But he wrote, uh, as he often would, he wrote the Senate committee report on the transportation bill, or at least the introduction. This was, as you know, and it still is unheard of in the Senate, someone actually writing their own words. Um, and here's what he wrote to, uh, as the uh, preamble to the committee report on ICE-T. The first federal highway program was signed into law by Thomas Jefferson on March 29, 1806. It was part of the arrangements whereby Ohio was admitted to the Union. The National Road, as it came to be known, more recently U.S. 40, was to connect the new state with the eastern seaboard. As has been the case ever since, the legislation both divided the states and united the nation. Um, there aren't very many Senate reports that start out with a quote from, start with Thomas Jefferson and go into political science fairly quickly. Um, Senator Moynihan also, I am happy to tell you, as a result of his work on the committee, was able to finally force the federal government, uh, which had, of course, funded the interstate highway program, to fund the New York State Thruway, which had had the misfortune, uh, despite being a model for the interstate highway program, to be built before there was interstate highway funding. Um, and so, Senator Moynihan, I just want you to know, this isn't ethereal stuff. New York State got billions of dollars back because of his committee chairmanship. Um, he believed that public works mattered. He believed that it was the, literally the stuff of life. He would thunder when, um, at hearings when uh, we would be unable to convince anyone that cities which had built their water systems and irrigation systems before we had the Bureau of Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers ought to be reimbursed for their work. He would say, you know, New York City has, many of you, uh, you know, this is such wonkiness, I'm embarrassed to say it. New York City has two water tunnels uh, that, that feed Manhattan. They leak like crazy. They've been trying to build a third one for a long time. Um, Senator Moynihan would say, you can live without oil. You can even live without love. You can't live without water. Um, so in, the, in the course of some of us working on the, um, on the transportation bill, we discovered, and this is a theme that, you know, recurred through Senator Moynihan's career, whether it is uh, welfare, uh, the organization of the United Nations, uh, the threat from radical Islam, um, or highways, that he was so far ahead of his time that it boggles the mind. Senator Moynihan, in 1960, we discovered, uh, leading up to the ICT bill, in 1960, he had written a, uh, an article for the reporter called New Roads and Urban Chaos. Now, mind you, at this time, the interstate highway system is only four years underway. Senator Moynihan reported on the following, that a, a reporter for The Economist uh, had said, um, had written in 1956, as the interstate highway program got underway, and Senator Moynihan quotes this, uh, this guy had said, you know, there, there are statements that are taken for granted in this country now that your highways are obsolete. Uh, this reporter had said, your highway system is magnificent. It is overburdened in the immediate vicinity of the largest cities, but get away from there, and the highways are empty. I wonder if the matter, the interstate system, has really been thoroughly investigated. Moynihan commented and responded in the article, it had been. Any number of congressmen had wondered if it could not be made bigger. It was. Um, and he knew that it was going to destroy cities. He talked about the fact that um, it wasn't a it, uh, as it, a quote. It is not true, as is sometimes alleged, that the sponsors of the interstate program ignored the consequences it would have in the cities. They exulted in them. Thanks to highways, declared the report, we have been able to disperse our factories, our stores, our people 
in short, to create a revolution in living habits. Um, Senator Moynihan was so far ahead of his time that in the, in the Pennsylvania Avenue plan, which we all think of today as, okay, it's really great, it's a mixed-use development. Remember that he's, he's writing this thing not long after Jane Jacobs wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and the idea of mixed use as a good idea, as opposed to zoning, which kept mixed uses, which kept uses apart, was a brand new thing. Senator Moynihan wrote about Pennsylvania Avenue in the report uh, to the Committee on Federal Office Space that um, Pennsylvania Avenue should be dignified, lively, and inviting. Um, urban planners in 1962 were not thinking lively and inviting. Um, but he was. Um, finally, I, I, just to, just to w- one thing about um, the guiding principles, which is worth noting. You know, everyone, people really do, at least we in GSA, of course, it's an article of faith that uh, federal buildings should respect, uh, reflect the dignity, enterprise, vigor, and stability of the American national government. Um, but what you know is Senator Moynihan, there's a coda to that. Senator Moynihan would always say, so let me explain what I mean by the government should take its architecture from the private sector and not back. He would, he would put it this way. Build whatever the whiskey trust is building, and over the years you'll get the good with the bad. <laughs> For years I was thinking about what that meant, and then one day I was in New York City, and I was driving up Park Avenue and looked at the Seagram building, and I knew <laughs> he confirmed that was it. So here is, the, here, here is Senator Moynihan. Here was the point he made about public architecture. Um, he argued that um, architecture is the one inescapably public art. Government can have as little involvement with the arts generally as it chooses, save that it cannot avoid architecture. And he said architecture is inescapably a political art, and it reports faithfully for ages to come what the political values of a particular era were. He once called architecture as fundamental a sign of the competence of government as will be found. Um, I often wondered how he he got to this feeling about architecture, um, but it was completely tied to his view about American government, uh, the community, the polity. And um, in the turmoil of the 1960s, he called for, uh, referring unfortunately mostly to uh, GSA, about which uh, more in just one second, um, he called for architectural magnificence, but not necessarily monu- monumentality. He called for a public architecture of intimacy, one that brings people together in an experience of confidence and trust. Um, and Senator Moynihan meant that I think all of those experiences of studying in the New York Public Library, a, uh, in the great reading room, a room that belongs to you, whether you're rich or poor, um, belongs to everyone, really made him believe that public spaces and public architecture can, can have the effect of cementing us together. But I have to say, um, just so those of us, I have many of my GSA colleagues here, can remain humble. I saw him once at a hearing. Um, he had this rapier wit, as you know, and he could express these things in a, in a way um, that was often ennobling and oftentimes humbling. Uh, the uh, assistant commissioner for design uh, of GSA came in front of him and said, um, uh, Senator, you know, we really know how you feel about public architecture, and we are trying in GSA to put the poetry back in our public architecture. And Senator Moynihan went like this and said, um, Sir, I think you should try to get the prose first. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, I think uh, we put our microphones on. We'll uh, take questions uh, for a minute, but um, let me just uh, take my prerogative and say, as the, the, the senator had, had thought about public spaces as uh, lively and inviting, uh, my association uh, with, uh, with Pat and Liz and the family uh, comes not through architecture, but through the Smithsonian Folklife Festival on the Mall. And there, the senator met a guy named Dylan Ripley, a secretary of the Smithsonian. And when Ripley became secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, he remembered the liveliness of social spaces, uh, like in Paris. And he looked out on the mall when he became secretary, and he said, hmm, here's the National Mall of the United States, forest lawn on the Potomac. (laughs) He thought it was pretty dead. And so Ripley had as his idea of, uh, well, one of the first things he did is he took the statue of uh, Joseph Henry that had always, the founder, the first uh, secretary of the Smithsonian, always faced inward to the castle. And he said, no, we have to turn this statue around so the Smithsonian can face outward to the public and serve the public good. And then he wanted to liven up the mall, and he thought about his days as, uh, in, in New England bringing people to the mall, and so he started the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, and every summer, million, you know, hundreds of artists from around America and around the world would come to the mall uh, and be out there and show their stuff and have this conversation and dialogue with the American people about their, their culture. And on many occasions, uh, the senator helped us uh, when Moore and I first worked together, it was because the senator and Liz had worked in India, and we had India on the mall for the Festival of India, and we had an Indian fair out on the mall, and Americans got to know a little about India. And then we had the Dalai Lama on the mall, and again, we had to go to the senator for his help to be able to do that because we had Chinese uh, who were not exactly thrilled that we'd have Tibetans and, uh, from around the world on the mall. Uh, Then we did a program on New York, and the senator helped us bring New Yorkers uh, to the mall uh, so they can show their stuff and cook bagels and show us backstage Broadway. Uh, And then uh, the senator uh, and uh, Liz were particularly instrumental when we worked with Yo-Yo Ma and the Aga Khan because here we were bringing, and this was right after 9-11, and we were bringing people from Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East and China and Japan and Italy and France looking at the connections of culture over the Silk Road. And this was a massive project, and many people thought we were crazy to do it. Uh, And the senator and Liz were very, very supportive and said, this is what the country needs after 9-11 is the connection to the rest of the world so we at least understand the people we share this planet with. So we were always very grateful, and there were many times when the senator uh, got us out of trouble. Anyway, uh, let me uh, open it up for uh, for, questions. Questions to our distinguished panel. Maura. Maura Moynihan. I want to thank all the speakers. You were all just wonderful, and I feel Dad is in the room with us, and mm-hmm. I've been moved to tears and laughing so hard. And I just want to ask you, um, now that we're in the 21st century, what more can we do as citizens to keep Senator Moynihan's legacy going? Or we've talked a lot about the public space, but on education and Okay. May I? Um, one of the things I learned from Senator Moynihan um, is that no, no public appearance should be without making a point, even if it's just a celebration. He would give um, 
commencement addresses that would, uh, major foreign policy statements where he was taking credible abuse in the office for why he didn't just sort of tell the kids to go out and have a rollicking great life. Um, so I'm going to take the opportunity too to talk about an issue that Senator Moynihan was talking about in the last, his last years in the Senate and the last years of his, his life, which is very important to Washington, and it is the uh, effect that um, security concerns are having on our public architecture mm -hmm. and on the public spaces of Washington, more, more than almost any other city in the country as I see more and more as I travel around. Um, Senator Moynihan, um, when I was in GSA the first time in the Clinton administration, we'd unfortunately had the destruction of the um, <coughs> Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, and immediate, the immediate response was, um, uh, in some ways, I'll say now logical, and in some ways, uh, what Senator Moynihan referred to in a conference we held as a fearful response. And he would say, we Americans are not a fearful people, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't make the world think that we are a fearful people. So um, my plea is this is a very complicated subject. It has to do with things that are very emotional. Uh, the, what happened on September 11th makes us only more aware that there are, <clears throat> as Senator Moynihan was fond of rem reminding us, yeah, <laughs> seriously bad people in the world, uh, but um, you know that the world can be a dangerous place, as he put it. But um, there are responses that would not keep us from having that architecture of intimacy uh, that he talked about, a, a, an architecture that, that uh, reflects confidence and trust of the American people. And um, I would just urge you all to help us uh, get there. It requires uh, not just those of us in the government thinking what's the best way to do this, but it requires the American people uh, to demand a, a different approach. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Nelson. No, the, the State Department, you know, I'll just say something ironic. For, for decades, because um, uh, I want to say something good about the State Department. Uh, for decades, the State Department, you know, really was the, the gold standard for American architecture. I mean, whatever you think, they were hiring the best American architects in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s um, when GSA was, I'll just say, not. And, um, <laughs> And then things flipped. I mean, in the 1990s, we started hiring the best, um, and the State Department was, through the 90s, including David Childs for the embassy in Ottawa. Um, and then in uh, the previous uh, eight years or so, I don't want to be partisan, uh, that fell apart. The, the London embassy, in some ways, ironically, is a, is a hopeful sign that state is, once again, going to have really good architects do the work. But I do have to say um, that somewhat the last time they did this, that, uh, well, they, they built a really good embassy in uh, Beijing. Uh, but there, too, it's kind of hamstrung by security concerns. They hired a terrific architect in Berlin near the Brandenburg Gate. And that uh, fell, I think, um, afoul of some security concerns. And I think the London Embassy, where they've, again, selected a wonderful architect, has these serious problems. Now, the one thing I'll say that the State Department people always remind us, and you, you know, just to get into the weeds a bit, they do remind us that whereas in America, if somebody attacks one of our buildings, uh, you can pretty much count, you can call the police. If you have to, you can call the National Guard and they'll be on your side. Um, in some countries, if our embassy is attacked, 
um, it's the police who are attacking. But certainly, however, it's certainly not the case in London. Um, <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it, it just this puts on the table as much as anything how difficult it is in this environment. We have created certain standards uh, for security which are just very hard, uh, once, once they're set, it's very hard to waive them. And so there becomes a certain expectation among the embassy personnel and everyone about how the building is going to get done. Um, in any event, it is, uh, I think Karen Timberlake, the architect, have probably done as good a job as they can do given the, the brief they were given. But I take your, um, I thank you for your question. <laughs> um, I may yes, please, Dick. Warren, in answer to your, your question, uh, your father's legacy is so great and so diverse. Uh, hard to give a simple answer to it, but let me just give two pieces to it. The public policy that he propounded as a senator in transportation, the design of excellent programs at the GSA, and so many other ways, those legacies live on. And without him, they wouldn't be here. And I think it's up to us to see that they are, that they are continued into the future and, if possible, improved. The other thing is, is what we try to do in the preservation movement is to do what your father did in front of the guarantee building in Buffalo. Mayor, you've got to fix this building up, you know? <laughs> That's what it's all about. It's being an advocate for great buildings. And, and, and uh, it, it doesn't have to be just be preservationists who do that. You know? It's just people who care about their communities. But thanks to him, there are more people now who care about this kind of thing than ever before. You know, I got to say, I, I, I can't understand um, how it is that New York and New Yorkers don't feel that the failure to turn Penn Station into something that is a, has a semblance of dignity to it um, is, is, not an, is just not a shame, a tremendous uh, civic shame. And I, I gotta say, I don't, I don't get it. Um, it's, it's hard to understand. I, you know, I, what I guess what I'm reflecting is that, well, there aren't very many people who are gonna understand um, architecture and urban planning the way Senator Moynihan did. You wouldn't think that leaders would come up to have to come up to a terribly high intellectual standard to understand that some things are just unacceptable, and I don't understand why that doesn't happen. Any other questions? Well, I, I, yes, <coughs> Anne Goodyear, curator from the National Portrait Gallery. I really didn't plan that. <laughs> uh, I, I met with uh, Secretary Clough uh, soon after he arrived uh, to talk about this very subject. Uh, that is one of the great buildings, uh, not just on the mall, but in Washington. That has been empty for so long, it's deteriorating, it's very expensive to restore. 
it was going to take a very creative mind to figure out the appropriate use, appropriate for the Smithsonian and appropriate for the mall, uh, but also uh, to serve a much larger purpose. I think it's pretty clear that in these fiscal times, the Congress is not going to step forward and say, that's a really swell building. We want to put $100 million into the Smithsonian. It's not going to happen. Uh, uh, so it's going to take some kind of creative public-private partnership, in my view, uh, to find the right, the, uh, the, uh, the right purpose, the right use. I think that's possible. And, and I know the Secretary's uh, committed uh, to uh, doing right by that building and putting it back into use. It, it has to happen. It, it's one of the, the second oldest building at the Smithsonian uh, and one of the great buildings in the city. Um, I should recuse myself because I was part of a team that actually looked at a public-private partnership on That's the building. It hasn't, right? <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to say this uh, too. There, um, I, I think that uh, I, I think Dick is absolutely right. We're, there's going to need to be some kind of a partnership. I think that tie that to the whole question of whether the um, whether we can turn the mall from Park Lone on the Potomac. A parcelon rather on the Potomac to something more more uh, exciting. There, there's a real need on the on the mall for some place where the tourists who you know you see tromping up and down our kind of long expanse of spaces, looking for some place where they can sit down, eat. I know you have um, uh, restaurants in the Smithsonian buildings, but a kind of a fun place, a more interactive, exciting uh, display venue, and maybe even some, God forbid, retail in there because goodness knows the Metropolitan Museum helped show us how a museum shop can really sort of be integrated into a museum. Um, I think that there, there might be some opportunities to do this in a dignified way that doesn't sell out the mission of the Smithsonian, which I think we're all concerned about. Yes? David, you got a favorite Oh, that's an impossible thing to, uh, to ask me. Um, Scott, that's not fair. <laughs> I know so many wonderful stories about Pat. My favorite ones, I wouldn't tell in public. <laughs> Me too. Can I say that he had, um, in his office, I think until the time he left, he had a sketch that was done by William Walton, who was the chairman, an artist, and the chairman of the Fine Arts Commission under President <coughs> Kennedy, when they had just started working together on the Pennsylvania Avenue plan. And the sketch showed this um, lady of the night, you know, like this, big, big bag. And, um, it, uh, and she had a sash across her uh, that said, Miss Pennsylvania Avenue, 1964. And was, I think that was a great expression of lively and inviting. <laughs> I, I would like to add something uh, that touches on some of the earlier uh, questions that have been uh, asked. And that is that uh, Pat's legacy, uh, in many ways, um, is in the generation of people that he left behind. I remember one night uh, late, I was so frustrated that things weren't getting done, and with the bureaucracy that was happening, he said, well, yes, David, you're right. But there, the government is filled with bureaucrats, but it's also filled with the very, very best. And that was ta Pat's talent. He said, to be a great success in government, you find out who those people are and you surround yourself with them. He was never one to take glory, strange for a senator, 
uh, but to pass it on and to acknowledge uh, the talent that automatically flocked to him. Uh, I, um, I, of course, was this odd young man working on this particular project that would come by the office all the time, but it was filled with interesting people from Tim Russert to, um, uh, to all sorts Will. of people. Who George Wells. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, um, and uh, Richard Blumenthal uh, was there when I, when I was there, who is now not here tonight because he's out campaigning. Good luck. <coughs> uh, but, um, and Bob Peck. Uh, so he instilled in another generation his wisdom, his love for, for many different fields, and those acolytes are now going out, excuse me for calling you an acolyte, I'm, but that's not I'm so flattered. bad, <laughs> uh, uh, to doing their job. And uh, I wish that were still true in people uh, on the Hill, that we're still finding the best talent, recognizing the ones that are in government, uh, calling them forward, giving them credit, bringing them out, and uh, there's so much work to do, we need as many as we possibly can get. And that's a pretty good answer, Maura, to the question you asked. Ben, I think we're a little beyond the time, so thank you very much for a lively session of speakers. <laughs> And I, I don't know if you could say it in a federal building. It's almost like you want to, you know, take out the cups and sit around a circle and tell a few stories about that. It's, Brandon? It's my privilege. I'm, I'm really in awe of everything that we've heard tonight. It's been absolutely wonderful. I thank every one of you and Richard for moderating. We have a wonderful reception planned in the Kogod Courtyard, and we can all just get our cups and sit in a circle and talk if you like. <laughs> but don't forget to please, please, if you would like, please go up to the second floor after you've had your first glass of wine and see our new exhibition, which opens tonight, Glimpse of the Neighborhood, which includes some wonderful photographs of the area around the old Patent Office building, as well as a fabulous caricature portrait of Senator Moynihan by Pat Oliphant. And then just outside the exhibition, there's a wonderful display of the actual portraits that you've been seeing images of throughout this presentation. And I know I've, I've loved seeing himself behind our wonderful speakers. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.